This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to Front Office Features. I am Rob Crane, and I am here with a distinguished Springfield College alum. At least there's one on this podcast. Uh, Mr. Cena. Rob Brett. John Cena is here. <laughs> they would, uh, the downloads will be higher for yeah, you. Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> Rob Bradford is the site editor and works for WEEI. Rob, uh, Welcome to Front Office Features. Uh, thanks for having me, Rob. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, we got a chance just the other night just to uh, rehash some Springfield College days. And and um, uh, I, I, w- I think I subtly was able to balance the reality of going to actual college events slash parties slash keg parties um, <laughs> and, and, and passing along words of wisdom. So, um, yeah, it was a lot, it was a lot got of much- times. They got much more wisdom from you than they did from me, uh, but it was a great time to go back at Springfield. That was a, that was kind of a fun thing to do. I think everyone wanted to talk to Matt Ferry from the Yankees. I know. Well, I wanted to talk to him for a different reason. I wanted him to be like, you know, I, you. everyone else can call you Matt Ferry. I want to call you Source, so please. <laughs> I want to call you Source. Yeah. <laughs> they uh, One day, uh, I'll have to tell you my story um, cause I've, uh, it, about Brian Cashman introducing me to my wife unknowingly. Really? He predicted, he predicted my marriage and I knew my soon to be wife for like 48 hours. Wow. Wow. Is that the base? He is, he is a genius. Some belie- I he, thought, he's... I thought the Andrew Miller trade was good, but that, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the it's the greatest story I have in my arsenal, uh, and, over, and, and uh, I have two great stories. It's that one, and then my father in the late '80s beat up the Philly fanatic. Oh, really? Yes, oh, at, at veterans at Veterans Stadium uh, while I was there. So I've told both of those stories on this podcast. I'll have to send you those. Uh, I'll have to send you those episodes so you can get the. Really, the two great stories of oh my uh, that's in the Rob Crane that, Arsenal. That is awesome. That and, and if if you can send me video of either one, I would like that as well. So that's pretty. I'm cool. I am dying for the video of the of the Philly Fanatic one because it was like in the late '80s, and my mom says that she said that one of her friends saw it on television. So it had to be, it had to have like it had to be recorded somewhere. Yeah, of course. And as as someone who interned at Nassen, I think it was in like 1991, I can tell you that they archived everything. Now, it's in it might be in some like Raiders of the Lost Ark type storage facility, but it's <laughs> but it's there somewhere. Well, we may have to go find it. So, 
let's talk about early Rob Bradford um, in your Springfield College days and your beginning part of your career. What, like, what were you like? Were you the go get them type of guy that was the editor of the Springfield student or were you kind of not as ambitious? Because I definitely fell in the latter part when I was at Springfield. Yeah, so I, I was a kid who probably had a severely undiagnosed case of ADHD. And I, you know, I didn't party a lot, but I, I love sports. And, and so, and wasn't a great student. And I went, I actually ended up doing a post-grad year and won a New England championship at Brewster Academy, which I, you know, I said, oh, of course they recruited me for basketball to win a New England championship. <laughs> but the reality was I just needed to get into college. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I got my, I got, you know, late bloomer, got my grades up, but still it was always sort of, I like sports. And I always tell this story about, getting into sports writing and how impactful one little thing can be. You know, my junior year of high school, one of my English teachers just said, you know, compliment me on a, on a story I wrote about a pickup football game at Thanksgiving. And just having someone say that you did something well, like hit home. And then I had did something along those lines at Brewster, same thing. So when I got to Springfield, you know, I, I, you know, everyone, you know, Rob, it's sort of like, well, I can be a coach or I can be a gym teacher or I can be something else. <laughs> and so I, 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 my, I had a major in English and they did sports journalism concentration. So I was sort of going down that path, but it was really like, okay, now I get to write all the time for the school paper. Now I can make, make all kinds of mistakes. Now I can, you know, try to put something on the school radio station um, it was just cool because, and I do have a minor in coaching, by the way. Um, I oh, learned, there you go. Yeah, I mean, like, talk Old about, sport. yeah, talk about some of the greatest classes in the world, baseball coaching, where you learn how to put eye, eye black on and things like that. <laughs> you literally did. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. So, um, so I. Eye black's a farce, right? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's for show, right? It's, it's, it's a total for sh- It's a total for show, but don't tell Mookie Best that he just made $400 million no, with eye black. No, it's, you know what, it, you know, you know what eye black is? Eye black is like the, the first version of fighting necklaces. Do you remember fighting necklaces? Those <laughs> I things, do remember Dice those. K used to wear like 15 of them on it, you know, and, and it was like. I thought Dice K was going to fall over oh, with all him and Okajima. And then, and then once that, I remember because I covered the Red Sox during that time. And, and then everybody started wearing them. And then, I, you know, so I had to do a story on them. And Schilling was like, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's there. It's like the miracle drug. Everything was over the top of the Schilling. So but uh, and now, we, you know, you can't find those, those things anywhere. I think they're just eyewash and a placebo. Anyway, um, so I go um, I go through Springfield and and you asked me sort of for my go getter. I think I just like I think it's like you know, the fact is that when you're singled out a little bit here and there and you do some things which you enjoy and, and you get the opportunity to do them. Like I did a George Plimpton thing where you play out this, play the sports rugby and hockey, even though I couldn't skate and things like that for the school paper. And then, uh, and then, so you're going down that road and I interned at Nesson, I interned at channel 40 and I'm thinking, you know, I'll, I'll keep all my options open, but you know, the, the business is a hard one. I mean, just because you go through all that, it's still hard to break in. And my story is, you know, isn't like, hey, you went to Northwestern and you got a beat writer job at the age of 23. I mean, my story was you got out of Springfield College with, you know, with whatever writing experience that I did and you freelanced for the next 10 years. And then you finally got your first full-time job at the age of 29 at 30. 
And really, you got your first full time job at at 30 and you were freelancing for 10 years. So I got out of Springfield and I went to the Salem news and, and with a bunch of other guys, sort of, we got paid 50 bucks a night. uh, And they just basically said, write as many stories you can until 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) And it was, it was great experience. I mean, you, I learned so much about the sports editor, Bill Kaporis was very aggressive and he, he treated it like a major beat. And so you learn how to be aggressive and you learn a lot there. And then I went to uh, Beverly Peabody time from there. And then I started my own sort of freelance business um, for about four or five years. Um, in the meantime, by the way, I coached high school basketball. I had used that minor in coaching at Concord Academy. Oh, so it, it, it all, uh, it all, it all goes back to the Springfield. Springfield right. you I mean, the coaching look, minor. Right listen, there. I mean, this, I mean, uh, you know, you never know how much it actually means in a resume, but I couldn't have hurt. Right. I say, Oh, right I mean, how many, how many, how many schools will actually give you a coaching minor? I mean, so, uh, it's sure. A, it's, a, it's awesome. But, it's awesome. um, it's just great. So I went to, um, so anyway, so I went through that and then, uh, I had my first child, um, in 1997 and and then uh so that was five years after i graduated and then 1999 is when i got the job at the gloucester times as a sports editor so that was my first full-time job wow they um so you went from you were bouncing around you're doing all this freelance and with it with a child and then how did you how did the red Sox beat uh come along how did that happen well so when i was freelancing i actually I actually was freelancing a lot with the Red Sox. So what I would do is I would look at rosters, look at where the the players were from, their hometowns, and do stories for their hometown papers. And I would go down in the spring training for weeks at a time to do this. And so um, so I was sort of integrated into the Red Sox a little bit that way. I mean, I'm sure everyone looked at like there's that there's that annoying freelancer. But for me, it was it was something that sort of separated itself. And it was, it, you know, it was just it was just, you know, uh, something I kept me around the Red Sox. It was a cool thing. And and I just thought it was a good idea. I think every every hometown newspaper does stories on their players. And so I was there. So I might as well do it. But then um, ultimately, in 2001, I went to the Lowell Sun and. I and Chas Goggins, who was the official scorer for the Red Sox for a long time, he also covered longtime reporter for the Lowell Sun covering the Red Sox. And so I wasn't going to cover the Red Sox for the Lowell Sun, but at the same time, you know, I wanted to stay in it. So in 2000, in January 2003, I, I kind of felt like, okay, you know what? I got to do something. I got to keep moving forward here. So I called JP Ricciardi, who, you know, was former Blue Jays general manager who I knew just from seeing around from freelancing. And I said, you want to do a book? I have an idea for a book. And the the idea is to follow around a couple of GMs for the year. Now, keep in mind, like I'm at the Lowell Sun answering field hockey calls. So, (laughs) um, so he, uh, so he's like, I didn't realize it, but his best friend, Billy Bean, the year before had just finished the process of Moneyball. And so I think he liked that idea. And I said, I want to do it with you. And Theo Epstein was like the big name then, 28 yeah. years old. I mean, he was the big story. I didn't know Theo at I all. At, I was at Springfield and everyone on at that time and everyone just wanted to be Theo Epstein. I want to be the next Theo. I want to be the and, next and Theo. Right, I, I mean, know. it's like it was an unbelievably huge story. And now we have a lot of young GMs. But I mean, even for that, I mean, even now, though, I mean, think about it, Rob. I mean. 28 years old to take over the Boston Red Sox. It's insane. And, it's, and I, 
That's not, knowing Larry now. That's right up his alley. Yeah, if it's yeah. insane, it's like for him. <laughs> oh man! And, and that was a weird thing. Is that because because JP they actually like went after J, they went after Billy Bean, then they went after JP. But JP was only there at the Blue Jays for a year, so he wasn't going to jump ship. And then you know that JP knew Theo, so he recommended Theo to them, and that didn't ha- hurt. And um, but also you know so. I cold called Theo. Like I called him to ask him about some little spinner guy. And then I said, by the way, I want to do this book and JP's interested. And I like, I don't know him at all. And he talked to JP and basically I think he agreed to, to let me follow around for, to a certain extent, just uh, out of a favor to JP more than anything. And so, um, so why I'm at the little son you know, again, answering field hockey calls or doing whatever, going to the office. I'm writing this book um, about these two general managers, and and I, I would show up, you know, in Toronto, and the Red Sox beat writers would be like, "Who's this guy? What's he doing? What's happening? What, why are you talking to these guys?" And it, so it wasn't really. He's talking about covering the Red Sox. I wasn't in the inner circle by any stretch of the imagination back in 2003. I even tell people, you know, in 2004. When they win the World Series, I, I was literally ca- answering a call uh, for a field hockey game. So it was, uh, wow. yeah. So it took a little bit longer than most. So I have to give you so much credit. It's like you just said one day, screw it. I'm just going to go do something that is what no one is expecting and go figure out a way with JP Ricciardi and then go ask Theo. I think the go get him spirit is something that people need to have that separate yourself. We talk about separation all the time mm-hmm. and you just said, screw it. I'm going to go, I'm going to go do it. Was there like total fear in that? Was there like excitement? Was it both? How did you I, feel going into writing a book with two general managers? Yeah. I think it's just sort of, you're not really seeing things clearly. Like you're, I think huh. you're just driven. I mean, you're just like, you know, it is, it's to your point. I mean, the separation thing is something I'm sure you guys talk about. I, I, this is, I, everyone has to find a way to separate themselves. But I, I was just like, you know, you never know unless you ask. I mean, that, that to me, that moment where I called JP was the ultimate, you never know unless you ask. And it's easy not to ask. It's easy not to do that. But, you know, it's hard to do it. And sometimes you just got to swallow. And when you're, and when you're yet a little bit younger, you're sort of like, you're a little bit more fearless, a little bit more like, what the heck? Um, and you just go from there, you know? So I think that it's, you know, it's, it's like that with a lot of things. I, after I did this book, Chasing Steinbrenner, I wanted to, I, I, I don't want to say I liked the book process. It was hard, but I wanted to do another book, but I wanted to do one where I didn't have to rely on people. And so I want, so I had this idea of basically doing a book about running the marathon, a non-runner running the marathon, but why I was doing it, why I was training for it, meeting up with famous people who, who lived healthy lifestyles, because I knew that book publishing, you had to have marketable people in it. So um, you talk about like taking that risk, taking that leap, you know, okay, well, I want to do this book. I got to get famous people. So I'm going to call Will Ferrell's life coach and then I'm going to call Will Ferrell and then I'm going to call, you know, and will they get involved? So long story short, I I basically ended up running the marathon with Will Ferrell's life coach uh, going out to the going out to the starting line 
in a limousine with um, <laughs> the only way I can reference this woman, very nice woman, is by where, how people know her now. Jeff Bezos's girlfriend now, Lauren Sanchez. Um, okay. So she was married to Patrick Whitesell, which was the biggest agent in Hollywood, Affleck's agent. So here I am, literally still working at the Lowell Sun, going out in a limousine to the starting line with Will Ferrell's uh, life coach, Lauren Sanchez, Patrick Whitesell, you know, having uh, having a talk to, you know, having basically gone over to Moby, Moby's house to talk to him and all of that because, you know, you never know unless you ask. And I, keep in I, mind, keep in mind, by the way, like, again, I was at the Lowell Sun still answering field hockey calls. <laughs> That's amazing. You just went out and did it. And uh, by the way, your Rolodex and your cell phone must be out of this world great. Well, it, it's, I, I don't, you know, some of the numbers I haven't used in a while and some of the emails I haven't <laughs> used in a while. I actually looked up the other day um, because, like I said, I met up with different people along the way. And one of the, one of the people was, uh, or things was, you know, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog from, yeah. from Conan O'Brien. And so Conan, Ro- yeah. Robert Schmeigel was the guy. And so just through a connection, I got a chance. And, you know, so the day of uh, – well, so I met up with him, like took a picture of running on the treadmill with Triumph the Insult co- Comic Dog next to me. And I was just looking at old emails the other day. And he sent, he sent me an email of the day with the marathon. He said, hey, good luck. Don't poop yourself. And so I'm like, <laughs> uh, like yeah, so it's, it's, I've had – it's funny because you're right. I mean, it's I've met. That's one of the. But you know this. I mean, one of the great things about this business we're in is you meet people from so many different walks of life and all over the place. And it's it's it's. I think sometimes we should slow down and and appreciate it. Yeah, there's a stop and smell the roses part of this. So you've written uh, that book, and then you also wrote uh, uh, basically you know co-authored Mike Lowell's autobiography. What's it like when you get the book for the first time and your name's plastered on it? And it's that's got to be like one of the great feelings of all time. Yeah, there's nothing like it. It's like, you know, when you're published for the first time in a newspaper, that's an unbelievable feeling. And then like when I was published in the Springfield student paper like that, oh, my goodness, that was unbelievable. And and, you know, published in any newspaper. But then when you get the book, that's a whole nother level. And it's really was, it's like, it's, it's, it's a feeling that you can't explain. And, and honestly, you know, I, you know, in regards to the Lowell book it, for him too, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, here's a guy, you know, any guy, any person, you, you get a chance to see your life in a book. I mean, to, you want to become a, a major league baseball player. That's one thing you want to become a world series MVP. That's another thing, but to get a chance to tell your, your life story, and actually have people want to publish that life story, and actually have people who want to buy that published life story, that is the ultimate cool thing. What was the biggest difference uh, from the book with JP and Theo to the book with Mike Lowell? Oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's like, I, apples and oranges doesn't even do it justice. Because, you know, the, when I was when I was doing the book, you know, obviously you're I was a nobody at the Lowell Sun trying to get this book published, by the way, in the shadow of Moneyball, which I didn't even realize that had been was in the works. And so just to get it published, even with Theo and JP attached, it was a difficult task. And and I was reliant on them. I was reliant on their stories. I was reliant on them falling around. And then I just became obsessed with it. It ru- it, it ruled my life. 
um, for about a year and a half. And once again, it's like, and all then, by the way, when you actually get it done and it's published, I mean, it's like, let's call it a cult classic. You know, it was, it <laughs> yeah. was, you know, he, like JP's like, oh, you know, we'll split the advance. Like, no, like, the advance was nine grand. It was like, no, he's, he's like, you can have it. You know, like, so it's just, it's such a, I, I would love, I, if, if you had to me to choose one of the books, like kinds of books to do, I would do that kind because it's more creative. I like creativity. It's like, that's why I want to do the running book. But at the same time, you know, to, to do the book, like with a player, to do the book with Lowell, it's number one, I had to write 70,000 words in a month and a half. Because he wouldn't do the book until if unless he signed with the Red Sox after the World Series. So that was like December. We had to get it, get it done in a month and a half. I was on Disney cruises writing, writing. I was, you know, Christmas Day I was writing. So it's just it was it's a time crunch. And it's just different because you literally uh, you're just interviewing the guy and then you're taking his words and you're writing like you think he would say it. And that's it. And the one of the, the best compliment I got from Mike was my friend read it and it said he said it sounded like me, which is like that's that's what you want. And but that's I awesome. I can't imagine Rob to do one of those books. And I've had the opportunity to do a couple others since, but I can't imagine to do that without knowing not, a it's a good story and knowing the person is going to be invested and and really like uh, going to be able to tell their story. It's e it's easy money. Like that is easy money, but it it, huh. it is doesn't sound like it. Well, it, I mean, think about it. I, you know, the timetable is, yeah, it's hard for a month and a half. It's hard for a few months, but you get it done. And then I, I did 15 book signings for chasing Steinbrenner. I've had at least half of those were two or few people showed up. And I mean, <laughs> I was, I was driving around all over New England to set these things up. And, and with Lowell, we did two. And it was like a conveyor belt. And so it's, uh, oh. it's, it's just, it's completely different. And I think that, you know, I, again, I would love to get to the point where I could do like the creative book that would be like the conveyor book, a conveyor belt. But you know, the, you, that's, that's pretty hard to do in this day and age. Yeah. So you've had your hand obviously in, in writing and uh, with weei.com and overseeing all the content uh, there, but you've also really become a pretty big media personality, especially here in Boston. Talk about how you've handled going from the Lowell Sun answering field hockey calls <laughs> to now, like, you know, WEI.com and, you know, what you're doing, you're calling Red Sox games, right? So, like, talk about how it is different now than it is then. And how do you rely on those experiences from then and now putting them now um, as, you know, this giant media personality in one of the biggest cities in the country? Well, thank you for calling me a giant media person. But uh, it's, it's I, you know, <laughs> I, some days it doesn't feel, it feels like, you know, this is a tough business. But I would say this is that, you know, I, I, I'm available for mediocrity. That's what I say. It's I'm, 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 I'm at a moment's notice. I can be mediocre in many, many mediums. You know, I think that, you know, I think that when you're, you know, when, when I was growing up or not growing up, but I was coming up, you know, the, the sports radio was really rolling. I mean, you know, I mean, like, like the big show on the WEI was maybe oh, the, gigantic. Right, it was the biggest thing. It was the biggest thing. 
And those people who were on the big show basically made their names. And, you know, I, I you know, Bill Burt, the Lawrence Eagle Tribune, Steve Burton of Channel 4, Larry Johnson, the cartoonist. Um, you know, a lot of the people you would never know otherwise, but they were on the big show. And if you were on the big show, I mean, you had it made. So I remember I was at the Eagle Tribune because I went to the Lowell Sun and then I was at the Eagle Tribune for a year and a half. And they called me to go on the big show. And that was that was like, oh, my goodness, that was nuts. And so once you get on there and if they like you and that you get in the rotation, that's that's a huge, huge deal. And in terms of like the TV stuff, there were also that was also around the time where you remember, like um, it used to be called Comcast. Now it's NBC Sports Boston. Yeah. But they were they were doing the same thing. They were rotating writers in. And so if you get in that rotation, it's gold to it. But I remember the very first time I was on TV was actually on ESPN, which I, I would never, ever want to see the tape. I think we, I have it. I never want to see the tape. But oh, you know, I got to find it. No, no. Oh, my God. It's, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's one. It's so it's you know, we talk about book signings like I got all the book signings myself. Well, I was hustling. I was trying to get promotion. So. I had a connection to ESPN. I said, here, there's, I'm doing this book on the two general managers. And they had this show, I don't know if you remember it, it was called Cold Pizza. And it was the- Oh, book. I totally remember yeah, that one. Yeah, so uh, Jay Crawford, uh, I think Dana Jacobson was on. And, um, and that was it, in the morning, right? It was in the morning. It was ESPN's morning show. And so they say, well, you can go in. So they did it from the New Yorker Hotel. And it's like, okay, you can go on and promote your book there. And so they put you up in the New Yorker hotel because that's where they filmed it. And and so I was, you know, that I I was driving to Toronto to to go like hawk some books up there. So I drove to New York, did that, and I got on. And like I said, it was my very first time on TV. And when you're on, you know, when you're on TV for the first time, you're sort of like, I must smile. I must you know, sit up straight. I must <laughs> very robotic. Oh, it's so, yeah. And I was, it was just, it was so frightening. And so anyway, that was my first time. And then you do, you know, a smattering of this smattering that, but then you get into the two things are the big show or were the big show and that new England sports tonight or whatever it was at Comcast. And you get in, into that mix, then you're on your way. And then ultimately, um, because I was on the big show, uh, when they started WEI.com, you know, they, you know, I had some cachet on the radio. So uh, they hired me to be full time at WEI. And I've been there ever since 2008. And uh, and then I switched from Comcast over to Ness and I think about 2011, 2012. Um, and I just, you know, I think like you talk about calling games. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I, I have no idea. No idea. <laughs> That's I, what I was just going to ask you. That was my next question. Yeah. yeah about, well, go, well, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, what's the, you know, you're calling games in the uh, broadcast booth. What adjustments uh, are you making from radio, you know, going on the radio to calling baseball games? I mean, it's, yeah. it's a total different thing. Yeah. It, well, and especially like when it's no, no offense to Springfield, it's not exactly, I didn't get the training there. And my internships <laughs> at channel 40 in Nesson, you know, it was to press play and record and count pitches. So um, I, 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 the first time I did Nesson, so I basically, when Remy, the first time Remy was sick was 2012 and they were cycling in some people and they called me 
Uh, it was Will Middlebrook's first game. And they called me, said, can you do the game tonight? I assume it was with Ursillo. And so I'm like, yeah, I guess, sure. Now, I had they never said, this is how you do it. This is what you do. It was literally like throw on headsets and call the game on a Red Sox game on TV. If you told little Robbie Bradford that in Essex, Massachusetts, <laughs> be like, that's like the most insane thing ever. So I did it. I didn't know what I was doing. And um, I ended up uh, doing about eight more games on uh, when Jerry was sick again the next year. And all I can say, and whether, and then I did a bunch of uh, obviously radio games filling in with Joe Castiglione. And the only thing I said is like, I, listen, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I do know that I just fill my head with information and it's my job to give the information. That's it. It's and, a, it'd be, be myself too. Yeah. Yeah. It's preparation, right? It's like, and I'm sure like a lot of people I've worked with in these broadcasts are rolling their eyes, you know, are like, well, you're not, you know, trained. You don't know. Like, okay, that's fine. But all I can tell you is I'm going to fill my head with information and I'm going to be myself. And that's so, it. Um, so as you've grown uh, over the, over the years, you're obviously your stature has grown and you've been doing more and more things, but it also opens you up to more and more criticism. How have you handled the criticism that has grown from call, you know, taking the field hockey call at the Eagle Tribune to now calling baseball, the Red Sox games on Nesson, the most watched uh, sporting uh, event next to the Patriots. So this is now, this is the best question. And this is the question that for everybody who wants to get into the business, uh, you know, I think that, I think that people coming up have a much better idea of it because because of Twitter because people are constantly going back and forth each other with each other on Twitter. But you know, I remember initially it was message boards. Message boards were you know writers writers had the forget about athletes writers had the thinnest skin. They had the absolute <laughs> thinnest skin. They did because they because think about this, Rob. They never got criticized. They never, I mean, to, not to their face, not in places they could see. And then on message boards, all of a sudden, I remember the Chasing Steinbrenner. I obsessed over the message board. Great book, great book, great book. Oh, this sucks. Like, at, and then like, what? Wait, somebody, what? What do you mean? somebody is criticizing me? And then, I mean, so, and then you obviously get into Twitter, you know, back in whatever, 2008 or 2009. And that takes on, and at first you're like, Oh, how dare you criticize me? And I remember that somebody had a blog that was really critical of me. My brother took great offense and he ended up like tracking down. The guy was a lawyer and, and shut down the blog. <laughs> and, and I'm like, and to think about that now, like, well, like that's a Tuesday, you know, that's, that's, that's every day. That's every day. And it, it is just like, it's tough. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. It's as tough at first. It's not, it's not easy. It's not and especially on it, I'll be perfectly honest with you. At EEI, is probably even tougher. I'll be even more honest with you. The last six years at EEI have been, I, you know, there's nothing that could prepare me more than that. There just isn't. And and so I think that my my skin is about as thick as it, it possibly can be. My daughter just got into journalism. She works uh, at the Gloucester Times. Um, you know, my son is pretty active on social media and very political and, and he's in he's in the media world and and so like i i like i, I so anything i can pass on to them about don't engage don't engage i've never blocked anybody ever 
Like never. Really, you've never. You're very active on Twitter. You've never blocked no, anybody on because, Twitter because because that gives them the satisfaction. Like that's, that's <laughs> you know, that's giving them like that's giving them content. That's giving them and you know like I'll mute them. It makes my day a whole lot better. But I, I've never I've never blocked anyone. Actually, I lied. I blocked Evan Drellick for three hours, which made him so upset. <laughs> it, it was so great. It was the best thing that I ever did. But um, no, it's it's. You know, it's tough, but this is the part of the business, you know, and everyone handles it a different way. It does. But I think that, again, in sort of my world where, you know, you're coming up and you're like writing books and and you're doing stories and everyone's like, oh, that's great. You're doing a great job. And all of a sudden now, you know, you're on the radio and you can't speak or, you know, you look like crap on TV or whatever it is. You know, it's like that's that's comes with the territory now. and I can honestly say, like, it just it rolls right off, but it took a lot, a lot of years to do that. So, in this same vein, right? You're we talked about social media, never blocked anybody, and uh, though the Evan Drellick thing is funny, hmm. what's your advice to young people who are, you know, just starting their what I'll call their professional social networks, right? So, a heck of a lot different than their middle school Facebook page, but like now it's their professional social network, their professional Twitter, their professional Instagram. Uh, it's different, right? So like, what's your advice to those people who want to be the next Rob Bradford uh, in starting kind of their net, their their professional Twitter, I guess is the best way to yeah, put it. Yeah, no, it's a good way to put it. I think that first of all, think four times before you hit send. You know, that I mean, that's <laughs> the biggest thing. I mean, it's not even close. You, you don't, don't be reactive. Don't be very careful. I mean, it's, 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 you know, and because all it takes is one and, and believe it, all it takes is one and you can't delete it fast enough and someone's going to pick it up. And, um, and the other thing is don't take the bait, you know, that's, and maybe that's a little bit further down the line, but don't take the bait. I mean, this is, you know, we, whatever you call them trolls or whatever it is, but you know, you look at these people, like a lot of these people who are, are spending their time, spending their time, it baffles me that people spend their time just trolling. Just this is what they do. But like, don't, don't you have something else to do? Right. Well, that's what I kind of <laughs> feel like, but you know, that's their lives. And, but you know, but their, their payment, their payment in that whole thing is you, if you take the bait, if you engage. And so as hard as it is, don't take the bait, focus on what you want to say, focus on, you know, the good interactions or the fun interactions or the meaningful interactions. If you do want to get in an argument with somebody, it's not like I've never like gone back and forth with somebody, but if, but if I do, I'm going to make sure a, I have the time to do it and B it's going to be something where I'm not just going to like, I don't have like enough of an argument just, and I'm going to disappear and then get crapped on. You know, like I, right. I, I do get into argument. You know, I'll get in an argument with someone, but only if I know like, okay, you know, it's like, okay, here, you want to go? Let's go. And, mm-hmm. and that's not, that's very rare. And I would say to just to people say, you know, pick your spots with that. So, so with the way sports media is changing, right? It's not the big show anymore. It's not uh, Dennis and Callahan. It's, it's none of that anymore. Uh, as much as it is, you know, a, a, a different way about going, uh, you know, about giving the content, right. And giving in a unique way that, uh, people view you or go on your, or follow you or different things like that. Where do you see this 
way of social media going, not social media, I should say sports media. Uh, and what's your advice to people as they're trying to, uh, you know, kind of emblazon their own path? Well, I, we, we, we said it before, it's separating yourself. And I know it's like, this is every business, but it's in sports journalism now or sports media. This is what you got to do. You can't just be like, Hey, I can write a great column. I hire me, or I went to this school, hire me, or, you know, I did this internship, hire me. It's, no, I mean, you have to separate yourself. And and honestly, Rob, like, this is something that I, to, it never ends. Like, I have to do this today. I have to, like, I'm going in to do a three-hour uh, baseball roundtable with Mike Menansky. So how are we going to separate that show from the competitor's show? How am I going to separate when the Red Sox season starts and the games get going? How is How am I going to separate my coverage? Um, you know, like podcasts are a way to separate, I think, you know, there's, you know, diff using different ways of social media. The problem is, is it's exhausting. Like, like this isn't like writing a story and throwing the newspaper against the window anymore. You know, this is, <laughs> this is like, you have to, you have to find something every single day in a unique way to present it. Like for instance, you know, we're doing these zoom calls for interviews now. Everyone gets on the Zoom call, and then you have the 10 tweets in a row saying all the same thing. Well, how are you going to separate yourself? And, and so that's the biggest thing. Don't just settle. Don't just settle for, I think I'm, I can write a good lead. I think I can write a good story. I think hey, this, this, this person talked in the Zoom call with 15 people on it. I think I can write a really good story of it. Find something they said, and then call somebody that nobody else is calling. Get them on a podcast. And then once you have that podcast, like we're just talking about this, like this is a great podcast. You have been able to separate yourself because of the topic, because of the, because of the content, all of it. And, but now we're seeing so many podcasts. How, how are all these podcasts going to separate themselves? We had at WEI um, last summer, we basically tried sort of it, these podcasts. I said to everybody who was doing them, before you start the podcast, you have to start the social media account. It's the barstool thing, right? Like, right. Like that's like their thing is, is you're entertained by the show without even hearing the show, you know? And, and I think, yeah, right. It's all, it's all, it's a multi-channel thing. It's just not one way. Right. And so, and, that, and again, exhausting is exhausting, especially when you're, you're not, don't have a lot of bandwidth, but you know, that that's the world of social media today that in, I don't think that a lot of the people who've been around it for a long time really understand that. But if you don't understand it in this world where everyone's clinging to their jobs, you better understand it quick. So how do you balance that separating yourself, but also not being someone you're not right. So I, we've, I found an interesting quote from you. I'm not trying to be someone I'm not Bradford said, I don't think I'll ever become an ESPN anchor. There's nothing I can do about the way I look or talk. As long as I come in prepared and remain professional and not say anything stupid, then I'll be pretty happy. It seems like you're comfortable in your lane. How did you find your lane? Well, first of all, I have to ask where that came from. Like, do you know? Uh, I found it from some website, you know, Google right. Rob Bradford. Oh, it's okay. So I'm the, um, I'm, just, I'm just curious because like, I, I agree with what I said. So, <laughs> 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 uh, but, um, you know, so it's, it's hard, you know, it, it, you have to have an acceptance of this is going to work that this, 
you know, whatever you're delivered, whatever God gave you, whatever you work for, like that's going to work. And if you, if you just think creatively and you think, and you keep moving forward, that it's going to work. And so, um, you know, I think that you just have to, you just can't be like anybody else. And I think that honestly, Rob, like radio people and TV people too, I think they try to be like other, each other too much. You know, I, I do. I think everybody's unique and, and everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. Like, you know, I always love saying that Gary Tangway, uh, you know, he's, he, Gary Tangway is on New England Sports Tonight, or, or was, and he's on NBC Sports Boston. And he just jokes all the time. He's like, you know, I look up at the TV and I see you calling a Red Sox game, or I turn the radio and I hear you calling a Red Sox game, or I hear, like, like, how is this happening? Like, like how, how is this? Like, how is how is this happening? It's like it's literally like someone won a contest and they've been plopped in. But you know, maybe you know, I think maybe it's just because you know, I think that because of exactly that, you're I I I I'm not going to try to be someone I'm not. And there's there is sort of probably uh, an avenue for that. There is a there is an avenue for someone who isn't classically trained. Um, and I do like, if I believe me, if I was putting together things, I would understand. I understand like the, the best radio people, honestly, Ron, aren't the people who went to Connecticut school broadcast, so please ear must for the, if they're a sponsor, but they're, they're, they're not a sponsor, okay, okay. but they can be if they'd like. Sure. To. Sure. Like, well, they're a great organization. <laughs> and I know a lot of people who've come from and done great things, but the best radio people are usually writers. The, and, and the reason is, is because. As writers, you have to figure out what people want to read. You have to figure out what the story is within the story. You can't just take a, a what the, the surface level thing and say, here, everybody, you're going to pay attention to what I say because I'm going to say it with the right voice inflection and I'm going to say it loud and I'm going to say it with authority. No, those aren't the best radio people. The best radio people are the people who actually have to find creative ways to present things. I, I've always thought that. And and I go ahead. I'm no, sorry. no. And I just think you can teach the other stuff, but you can't teach. That's that's more difficult to teach. They seem you seem not only you seem authentic, but authentic being authentic is what people want to listen to. They don't want to hear the fake radio guy or you know read the fake column because it doesn't come across as real it come across as this like i don't know you know this it's just like crap right but, and but so when, many, when but so many of them rob like like you listen but they still i mean that's the problem these places are still defaulting to that and it's baffling to me it really is baffling and i'm not saying this because i'm like here you know give me more money doing other things like no that's not the thing but i have to hire people I have to be part of organizations and I'm just like, to your point, I mean, I think that anybody who listens, like it's supposed to be enter entertaining number one and authentic number two. And yeah, so that's it. Yeah. Well, um, I have one more, I could probably, Rob, I could probably talk to you for like ever. I've really enjoyed this, but you've got to get to like opening day at Fenway. So I want to be mindful of your time. Um, and by the way, opening day on July 23rd uh, is just, it's still, I can't wrap my head around I know. it. Trade, but I want to ask. Trade, trade deadline would be seven days away. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, right? It's, uh, it's, it's nuts. Um, 
I want to tell, I want you to tell this because you told this on the zoom on the Springfield college thing that we did. Uh, can you tell everyone about your champagne cork Christmas gifts? Oh yeah. So, um, so I've been, you know, like we talk about taking a step back and smelling the roses. I mean, the like, fact is, is that I've been in, I don't know how many celebratory clubhouses I've been in, uh, let's see, three, three world series when they won the world series. But obviously you, you lead up to that. You win an American league championship series and it's just, and when you're in the middle of it, really, you become like, I just got to talk to people, get out of my way, you know, stop pouring champagne on it. I got to get the quote, but still like you should take a step back and this is cool. And then people see it on Nesson or whatever. Like, Oh, I saw you. That must've been so cool. I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. It's, it's what a unique experience. But I learned, I think I learned pretty early on that one of the benefits is that, you know, it's easy Christmas gifts. You have champagne corks, <laughs> like the champagne corks are, are, are all over the floor, all over the floor. And so, you know, I'm not going to take anything from the locker room ever, except during when they win. And I'm going to take the champagne corks and stuff them in my pocket because they're Christmas gifts. And like, they're free and people bizarrely love them. I mean, like that's a like that's a cool thing. I can't authenticate it, but I can tell you that came from the Red Sox <laughs> celebratory clubhouse. And so uh yeah, it's 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 it's, a, it's one of the first things that go through my mind because again, I'm like I've been through so many of these now. You know what to wear, what not what not what what not to wear, um all of it and you also know to pick up the corks. That's awesome. It's one of the most creative Christmas gifts, yeah. uh, creative ideas. I just, I just, I just loved it. So, uh, Rob, I can't thank you enough uh, for joining me. This was uh, a lot of fun. I really appreciate. It. I think our listeners will get a lot of it as they kind of start their sports journalism career. And by the way, my sister is—I have twin sisters, uh, Rob—and they are twenty years younger than me. Wow. Twenty. Wow. And same parents, same everything. I always say I was that much of a pain in the ass that they had to wait 20 years. Um, and one of them goes to Springfield College, and she's going to be a sophomore, and she is the new uh, multimedia editor uh, for the newspaper. Oh, that's awesome. And think about that. Like, the fact that, like, there is a multimedia new, uh, editor for the newspaper is, like, such a huge step. And it's yeah. and um, that's, that's so cool. And, you know, she has a great mentor in you. And, uh, that's, I don't know about that. In no, spite of, in spite no, of, no, it's, 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 listen, <laughs> it's, it's the same thing. You know, any, any advice, everyone needs advice. Everyone needs direction. Everyone. It's a scary world. I can't imagine getting into this world now. It's just, as long as it took me, I would be three times as frightened now, but you know, at the same time, I've said this before to, to interns or whoever, you know, you, these people, these kids have an opportunity to go into an office and say, I can help you become better. I can help you look good to your boss. I can help your organization do something that you're not doing. And there hasn't always been that. And, but these days with, with social media, like you said, with your sister, what she's doing, like you can do that. So that's, that's at least a step in the right direction. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, like you said, uh, bring value. What value do you yep. bring? It's just not cool to be there. You got to bring, uh, bring value. So, uh, Rob, a million thanks. Go enjoy your uh, your round table with Mutt tonight. I'll definitely have to listen. And um, 
and, and enjoy the uh, enjoy the beginning of the baseball season. And a million thank yous for uh, uh, for joining me today. Appreciate it a lot, Rob. Thanks so much. Anytime, I really enjoyed myself. And, um, and yeah, anytime you want to talk, I'd be happy to. This is uh, this is my passion talking about myself. So, uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, no, my passion, honestly, talking about the industry is, is more fun than anything. It's more fun than talking Red Sox, anything like that. So it's a, it's a great podcast you have, so I really appreciate it. No, thank you, and we'll talk soon, all right? Okay. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.